Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. I caught you right when you were <laughs> grabbing a swig of tea, didn't I? Okay. Uh, and this is a podcast about Alaska. And um, yeah, this week we're going to... Um, we're, we're heading into the legislative session. It's been an eventful first week, and um, I think we're going to try and do the show a little more regularly during the session this year, and I think that's going to mean just less editing, um, less capacity to edit. <laughs> so um, so it might be a little rough around the edges, but uh, Matt and I will get together and we'll talk about kind of what has happened during the you know previous week and um, kind of unpack some of our thoughts and um, and we'll see how it goes. Maybe it'll go off the rails, but that's our goal. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, we take our goals lightly. Yeah, here. <laughs> I think you know we you know every session is a new year for aspirational goals. You you uh, you know it's from pre-filed bills to floor speeches to state of the states to you know hopes of doing a podcast regularly. <laughs> yeah, well we've we've we we at least we've done a podcast yeah. that's been semi-regular. It's been. Uh, we're still but doing okay. it at least you know it's not completely yeah <laughs> we're limping along it's it's been fun to it's been fun to do this it's been fun to go back and actually listened back to um i listened back to an episode we did in 2018 um and we'll talk about this probably a little more today but we interviewed libby bacalar um who just won her lawsuit um against the governor uh, her first amendment lawsuit um over her illegal firing and uh this was a interview we did with her back during the women's march um prior to her dismissal and um it was it was really an interesting thing to go back and listen to in that context um so i'm I'm, i am glad that we're like (laughs) capturing some of these conversations and uh it's fun it's fun to listen to either how wrong or how right or how little we knew um you know (laughs) um but anyways uh so i think we wanted to start today by talking about the um the the uh the 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 kind of the big showdown right this is what what everyone was building up to as session was beginning um on monday there was a um, a legislative budget budget and audit committee met with uh uh, craig richards uh to discuss the termination of angela rodell so richards is the uh board or the chair of the board of trustees alaska permanent fund um good friends with the Dunleavy administration, it's said. Um, and so, you know, the legislators really want to get a, a good idea of what's going on with the abrupt firing and still unexplained firing of um, former executive director Angela Rodell. Um, she, you know, led the fund f- for several years, um, several of the best years the, of its performance. And, um, you know, and it comes, and I think the really important thing to keep in mind here is this all is sort of happening at a time where the fund's importance to the state's overall budget and the state's like budgetary fiscal future and therefore like the future of services, education, all these sort of different things in Alaska are like um, becoming more and more important and more and more central to the discussion here. And so uh, I think there's a lot of interest. You see it from the uh, Senate in the legislature and, and all the sort of money that they want to like sock away into the corpus of the fund. So th- there's a lot of like interest in making sure that the fund is healthy and doing well. And of course, it's running up against Governor Dunleavy's sort of position that, hey, you know, we've done really well. We could spend this money, which is not what he's like um proposing to do this year 
because there's a bunch of one-time money. But if we'll get into it, um, he kind I, of proposed that though in previous years. He definitely proposed it in previous years. Yeah, and yeah. so, um, so I watched the hearing. Pat, did you get to watch it? I did. Yeah, it was uh, so very I want to hear entertaining. Your take. Yeah, <laughs> everyone can see read my takes on Twitter and and in the newsletter. Well, so. you know, it, he it it felt like he was. Um, he felt defensive, but also um, he felt like he was kind of saying, "Like I agree with you guys. I, I mean, I look, we, I'm doing what what we said we'd do, and and I don't understand why we're here. Isn't it wacky that we all agree and we're all sitting around this table? And and what a what a funny misunderstanding that we're all here today. And and also we fired her because we can do whatever we want, but also, but she was bad. And but we don't really want to justify it. And oh, what uh, what a strange coincidence that we're yeah. here today. It, it, he felt very like I'm on your side. Um, we're all friends, but not. <laughs> and, and yeah, anyways, that was I my mean, take. Think, was like he was trying to be like it's very strange that we're here today. <laughs> I mean, I think it was very weird too. I mean, it, I think it, a lot of. I think a lot of what you needed to know about the whole thing was in the closing where he was like, well, the best thing for the fund is for you guys to stop asking questions and, and move on, yes. just move on from this. And I think, I mean, I think he's right in the sense that um, they can do whatever they want, right? The, the, the executive director position is an at-will position. The board is allowed to kind of make decisions. But I think almost what it was interesting to me is that like, you know, sure, that's the, that's the power of the board. But it almost the the interesting thing is that kind of in this rush to to sort of you know tell everybody that there's nothing to nothing to worry about, it almost for me opened more questions to worry about like the board. You know, as if yeah. the board is making this decision and can't really explain it, and most indications seem to be that at the very least it's a personal sort of beef you know maybe it's maybe maybe there isn't you know there's all there's all there's all these questions about whether or not the Dunleavy administration was involved in it there's kind of ample evidence that suggests that maybe um but it has some really weird things like first of all what why does it matter if the Dunleavy administration's involved if they have all this power and they can just fire whoever they want it's weird to say we can do whatever we want but we're not going to tell you anything it's yeah. a public it's a public corporation it belongs to the people of alaska they need to answer to the people of alaska they can't just say like it's our it's our 65 billion dollars or 80 billion dollars or whatever you know whatever it is yeah. this week uh, and and it feels very strange to for them to say the you know he, he said some really weird things like of course we didn't write it down because we wouldn't want anyone to yeah we wouldn't want anyone to see that if we if we'd written stuff down about her bad performance and 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 it it makes me wonder what else they're doing behind closed doors if they're not willing to write down really basic employment stuff um you know I've, i've served on several boards of nonprofits, and they you know you this idea of having a performance improvement plan for someone who is uh is is your executive director so that they can improve and meet your standards like to 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 line out like these are the things we'd like you to accomplish and like you to do like that's a normal thing and the legislature brought that up when they interviewed him and he's like well this is you know this is a super high powered board so we actually don't have to do any of that stuff and that's not it's not normal to do that kind of thing on a on a high powered you don't understand how a giant corporation like this works we do whatever the hell we want and don't write it down and and it's kind of what i got out of it which is not 
it doesn't seem safe or or uh, robust or uh, accountable. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Is that the legislature, you know, they they're kind of have a two pronged mission here, which is they want to understand why Angela Rodell, who is by all accounts a pretty well liked, you know, successful manager, who has sort of like had the best interest of the fund in mind which is the second point that they have, which is they want to have the best interest of the fund in mind. They want to make sure that it continues to perform well, that it continues because it is such you know a foundational bedrock of the state's budget and will be forever at this point. Um, and so I think there's a lot of concerns. I think what they, they wanted to hear is an answer for Rodell that was explained something, right? They wanted to hear something other than, well, we could. And then they also wanted to hear that the fund is going to be in good hands moving forward. And I think the combination of, you know, trying to wave it away and then, you know, this is all, you know, I think they're, the important thing Def- to keep in mind deflection, is... Deflection deflection and obfuscation. Right. And then I think um, you look at some of the other things that are happening for the board around the edges where they are, you know, looking at modeling overdraws and they're taking a more aggressive potentially risky sort of position with investments and then you know they have a lot of these sort of state investments that are are they're trying to keep secret um all these sort of things are would lead me if i'm a legislator you know concerned about the pocket book of the state would be pretty concerned about it right and i think so there's sort of like several issues going on here i almost kind of think that the rodell issue is almost sort of, I mean, that's the, that's sort of the glitzy sort of drama element of it. But I think there's some like really big fundamental budgetary issues here, which, you know, this is the first week of session. There's a lot of discussions about what's going on with the budget right now. And I think that it is really making the case that, you know, something is not right here. Um, at yeah. the very least, they need to keep on kind of poking at it. And so that I think that's what's so laughable in my mind about this whole concept of well, the best thing for the fund is for you guys just to to act like everything's fine and and not keep on looking here. Yeah, and it also it feels like the in, the intent here is to sort of eliminate the, I mean, I, who knows what the intent is? It's 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 it's, um, but it feels like the intent here is to eliminate the executive director, um, minimize that position, make the board m- more in charge probably pay the board better expand the role of the board into sort of a like active board and then move the whole thing to anchorage like it is really what it what i'm picking up just sort of around the edges is like it, you know it feels like a really weird thing and it feels like um it's it's made even more weird by the fact that craig that craig richards was uh you know, Bill Walker's law partner for 10 years and then appointed attorney general under the Walker administration. Walker's the person that put him on the permanent fund board. Uh, His initial efforts with the permanent fund board were to make the permanent fund more of a stable source of income for the state of Alaska um, to help fund, you know, all the things it funds, like our state budget and our education and our, you know, troopers and all that. And it's, um, it's very weird to see him sort of like fall in with the Dunlavey camp. And I don't know if that's like, because, you know, like maybe he's in pursuit of power or maybe he likes the gravity of, of billions and billions of dollars. Um, or maybe he's a pawn in this and it's hard to tell what's going to happen here. You know, maybe Dunlavey will be willing to throw him under the bus because he's, 
maybe you know maybe he's expendable maybe Dunleavy's mm-hmm. going to be fine with Craig Richards taking the fall and then appointing someone else who's even more pliable you mm-hmm. know and it's uh like I don't the the I think the the actually you know Bill Walker's running for governor I think that he has to really he has to say something here about yeah. his relationship with Richards and what kind of person this is and what you know what circumstances he left under why did he resign uh, suddenly and without notice from the attorney general position. Um, you know, if we're going to criticize people like Clarkson and Sniffen and their exits from state service as attorney general, we need to probably understand a little bit more about Richards and what his story is, is before we yeah. <laughs> hand him, hand him our billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars that we've saved. He's like another guy from out of state who yeah. came here to like run our money. Well, that was it. That was a really interesting sort of subplot of this whole thing too, is that, so this hearing began 30 minutes after the governor finished up his pre-session news conference where he basically like went off the handle um, at the media, you know, especially he went is attacking the ADN, talking about how they're making up stories that they want to be a political arm of his opponents, all this sort of like kind of wild stuff. And it really, I think, kind of boils down to the fact that like the ADN like hasn't dropped it, and also the ADN's hosting um, Andrew Halcrow's podcast, which is yeah. which has been probably one of the most sort of like you know on the forefront of, of criticizing the decision and kind of continuing to sort of drip feed sort of little details of everything out um it's very opinionated yes it's and a, it's i mean it's it's a it's great it's an audio op-ed right yeah you know, and they've given him a real platform i don't know like what the process was for that like why did they choose that voice to to platform it would be interesting to know um you know there's a, a lot of people who have a lot of other things to say it'd be nice to have a you know, I don't know, maybe some other people doing the same sort of thing. <laughs> maybe the governor, <laughs> just right? Like, the governor should have no, his own podcast. No, I think it'd be great to have some uh, like, that was, people. That was who, one of his complaints who are, is that he didn't get who are just on. like normal citizens yeah. like, doing some like audio LTEs. So it'd be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to hear the like Libby Bacalar LTE. So, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, it's all like I think it's all to say, oh, and so the. So the, the 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 bigger background here too is that you know the administration sort of unilaterally decided to release um, Angela Odell's personnel file. This is sort of what all they are simultaneously arguing that Kevin Clarkson's file shouldn't be released. All these other files, and so it was interesting during this hearing. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, senators, I think it was Senator Natasha Van Imhoff, was asking, you know, hey Craig, do you think that your personnel file should be released? Do you think um, you know, the files of the commissioners who are on this board should be released. And then to that, you know, and that put the brakes on a little bit. I sort of didn't know how to answer that. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> you know, he was saying, you know, it's a bad policy. And, but I think, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's just so many weird questions around it. Right. I mean, this, the rush to release it, you know, which is the decision that went through the department of law, I think really does speak a lot to just the fact that we, can't drop this so we need to continue to get some answers about it because you know the release of a personnel file is something we have been told up until this point was you know a completely unthinkable sort of move but suddenly once it is you know somebody who's on the outs with the Dunleavy administration it's acceptable and so I you know I think there we need some clarity on that I think we need some clarity on the the future of the fund I think we need some clarity on the firing decisions 
Which is all to Did say you, we're all your journal. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, which no, is no. all I was all to say. I was going to start to transition into the budget issues. Oh no, no. I I want to say so. You're a you're a journalist. Like, is that is that? Have you been filing like rampant requests for like? Oh, personnel files are fair game. Shoot I don't. Me. So the thing is, is like, that it's just me here. I don't have. I can file some stuff. I don't have the resource. I mean, this is stuff that's going to end up in. I think litigation, right? And I don't yeah. have the resources to be able. Is to Is this do something that. where like the ADN or Alaska Public Media or, yes. or ProPublica or someone yes. like is like, okay, you put this one out. Yes. I I want all of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think I think that's what what we're gonna see here. I think there's gonna be an aggressive effort to try to get access to those in some way. That I think, you know, it, it's difficult because right now is the Department of Law, which is you know a political appoint, you know, run by a political appointee, is driving these driving these decisions and so you know are those the right decisions you know that it's probably something where we need the courts to be able to weigh in on it so we're gonna end up what's gonna end up happening is like four years from now they're gonna get a court ruling that says they should have never released the rodell you know personnel file and it will be one more lost lawsuit by the dunleavy administration Okay, but in in this sort of like dreamscape that we're in now where personnel files are fair game what personnel files do you think would be the most interesting or revealing uh to have as a matter of public record i mean i think the clarkson file honestly there's still you know this is the attorney general who resigned you know several months after he had you know pretty well documented incidents of uh harassing a a junior state employee um we have pretty good you know, reports about this administration's efforts to cover it up, right? And I think nothing about that seems good, right? And I think having a better look at understanding what the administration knew when they knew it, those are sort of the questions that we still don't really have answered about it. And yeah, yeah. I think those are exactly the kind of thing. There are, you know, there are people from administrations like the Dunleavy administration that have just sort of like quietly gone away and with you know sort of unceremoniously vanished and i think those are the ones where it would be interesting to know you know like what were the circumstances and why are you covering it up and why is it okay to do that um i mean i think we should you know when it comes to you know government public services and and the government sector i think you know disclosure is you know being over overzealous with disclosure is probably the right answer because it ultimately you know it's the way we hold these sort of systems of power accountable right and i think well, the fact that like you know that they get to decide what to answer what not to answer is this wild thing when it's ultimately something that the public owns and the public has you know the right to know that it's being managed well and if it's not then you know, we should be able to answer with it at the ballot box or wherever and be able to try to steer it in a better direction. And I think that's what I think is so frustrating about it is that, you know, just because whoever's in power gets to decide these questions is like really frustrating. It's almost like we should have, you know, in the magic world, I think you'd have a separate nonpartisan office that would handle this sort of stuff, you know, independent investigator, independent sort of like public records office that would be able to look at this stuff and say, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. And, you know, and without, without requiring everybody to go to court, because I think that ultimately that, that sort of creates a barrier too. you know, it can, you know, who really has the resources and interest and time to be able to challenge these things. Yeah. And it would be a lot more consistent if it was managed by, uh, you know, if it had consistent management, it wasn't just like a bunch of political appointees defending their boss. 
Um, yeah, I, I think that's, I think you're right yeah. on there. And it's, it's interesting. I think a footnote there would be that the stated goal of the Dunleavy administration was to be the most transparent administration <laughs> in state history, right? Yeah. And so I think they fell flat on their face, but that's my opinion. I mean, I think... All right. Uh, <laughs> so one last note here is that yeah. the... So I think, I mean, it's interesting in the context... So the, the State Officer Compensation Commission, this is the commission that decides legislator pay, um, they also this week approved changes to legislator per diem and stuff. All to say it's kind of a minor pay cut. They get a boost to their um, base pay with a reduction to um, per diem. But one of the things that they approved at the last minute was that we're going to get dollar by dollar accounting of how legislators are spending their $100 per day and per diem. And I think that's like, I mean, I know it's like uncomfortable for people that are in those positions and it's, I'm, I, I'm sure that it's like the, a overly onerous way of asking people to account for stuff. But I kind of like the spirit of it a little bit of saying like, if you spend a dollar of public money on gum, we're going to know about it. And I mean, it, it it's punitive. Like a huge it's, pain. it's totally punitive. Like, it's totally a hassle. I, I don't I mean, necessarily necessarily agree with the under this precise policy, but I like the spirit of it, right? I mean, the idea of like having the online checkbook, right, was like I, the I think thing the that only way that works. Yeah. The, the only way that works is if you give them like a credit card that yeah, you know, like that's automatically rung up. But I can't imagine tracking receipts for every little expenditure that you're like crediting to this per diem account. Like that just sounds like the biggest pain in the yeah. ass. Like. I mean, these are people that are trying to like deal with millions and millions of dollars, you know, and we're, billions we're squabbling of dollars over $100 a day with it. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I agree that it's not like, I, I don't really agree with this specific policy, but I do like this like spirit of disclosure yeah. and, and transparency in spending. Yeah. I like it too, but I hope it's automated and isn't some like ridiculous thing where Donnie Olson is spending 14 hours on a. <laughs> on a weekend trying to get his receipts figured out. Yeah, I mean, and and again, you know, our, is quib, squabbling over $100 per legislator per day really? Like, the, I mean, there's a lot more, like, opaque budgeting that is out there in state government that beyond the, the how, what, how legislators spend their per diem, right? So I think, like, I would, you know, I'd like to see this policy more broadly, uh, you know, implemented. All right. Well, you Anyways. tried. You tried to make a really smooth transition, and I interrupted it. So let's just let's just take the hard turn All here right. and so and cruise back into what happened this week, which is a lot of talk about the budget and um, projections for state revenue. Mm -hmm. um, multiple committee meetings dealt dealt with kind of that first week introductory uh, presentation that you get from multiple from you know you get from ledge finance, you get from uh, Department of Revenue, you get you get. Um, from the OMB, um, wait, is that the right? Yeah, <laughs> ABC Soup. Yeah, <laughs> okay, legislative finance. Uh, yes. Yeah, but uh, but you, but anyways, there's a bunch of presentations for all these different committees. This is what we're looking at in terms of projections, and there were some variances and some interesting pieces. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So I think kind of what it boils down to is, you know, how optimistic are you willing to be with the future of the state's budgets. And so basically kind of if you look at the really top line numbers that are being presented by the Dunleavy administration with the caveat that we are heading into an election year where he would very much like to spend a lot of money um, on everything from the PFD to everything else is we've got we look like we're in a pretty good financial spot suddenly because oil prices are going back up. So if oil prices like stay exactly where they're at for the whole year, which is like maybe never happened 
uh, we'll have like a $500 million surplus. And that's when you include, you know, several hundred million dollars of federal money and all these other sort of like one-time things. And so I think one of the really key things that um, I like that the legislature seems to be a take uh, the, the approach they've seemed to be taking in recent years is like, let's kind of take out the budgetary tricks in the, in it and like kind of look at where we really are. So kind of the status right now is that Dunleavy administration using a bunch of one-time money and a bunch of kind of like other sort of adjustments to the budget that, uh, you know, the legislature isn't really sure about yet. Um, He's managed to pay out a big dividend, managed to restore a bunch of funding for sort of various different areas, like school bond debt reimbursements, a really big one. Um, Oil tax credits, he's paying out nearly $200 million in in his budget and kind of manages to do it all without a draw from savings. And so, but all that is, and a lot of legislators have said too, like this is really sort of predicated on some like really rosy assumptions about how things go that they don't really buy. And so the question is basically, you know, it's not so much the questions this year really aren't so much about this specific budget, but kind of how this specific budget would position the state going forward. You know, is it does it help sustainable? Yeah. Does it sustainable? Does it dig us out of a hole or does it dig us deeper into a hole? And so I think there's a lot of focus right now on the fact that the governor is using several hundred million dollars in one time federal, you know, cares act and other relief money to take cover recurring costs right which is i think is a thing that a lot of like you know fiscal conservative budgeters would warn against um is it's creating a situation where you're creating this expectation that you know this doesn't cost as much as it does but then it's going to bounce right back up next year so you know for example um you know, they are, oh, I can't actually Marine think Highway. of a good example of it, but yeah. Marine, hi- Marine Highway. Marine Highway is a really good one where that's federal infrastructure money that is going to be taking care of most of it for the next five years, right? Which is great. Like, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, the question is, well, what happens after that next five years? And there's actually yeah. a really interesting point that um, Legislative Finance Division Director Lexi Painter brought up this week, which is that, you know, he went out to a budgeting conference this year and all the other people were all the other budgeters people similar positions that he's held are going oh how do you get your legislators to focus on the long-term fiscal picture like everyone here is just year by year and so yeah i thought that was interesting i think too. i think we are in a really you know i think it, we are in a, you know a good spot in the sense that we have some buffer to make some decisions about where we go next and so i think the issue now though is that you know, do we want to be able to use this sort of brief reprieve from our financial year, you know, a decade of financial woes to, you know, course correct and, and to go forward? Or do we want to be able to say, well, you know, got a little we got a little reprieve here. Let's blow it all in one year. And you new, new troopers for Matsu, a PFD for everybody. Yeah, yeah, dirty school districts and teachers can get your school bond debt reimbursement, all this sort of stuff. And and so I think it it really feels like a a election year budget in the sense that yeah. it's a little bit of something for everybody. And then it kind of sets up a lot of the people who are saying, well, whoa, pump the brakes here. Like, what about next year? It kind of sets them up as like killjoys, too, because <laughs> now is that you can. You know, one of the interesting changes that they're making this year, too, is that they're starting to 
update the revenue projections on a monthly basis based on like whatever the oil price of the day is and yeah. and it's like a, it's useful information if you keep in mind that like oil prices are fleeting and, and can change and you know uh you know opec can decide to you know you know, drown cut production We're or, gonna or they can. Production. Yeah. And, it, yeah. And, and so these things can are, are just wildly uh, variable. And so but I think you, I've already you already see some people say, oh, well, the new projection says we're going to have a, you know, half billion dollar surplus. So why not spend? And I think so it, it really is going to be an interesting sort of discussion that it is almost sort of feels is going to feel foreign to how it's felt for the last decade, which is, you know, we've been fighting over like, you know, pennies basically on all these little programs and all of a sudden we have money, but a lot of people are keeping in mind that next year we're not going to have this money. And, and so how that, and that's why I think stuff like, you know, the position of the permanent fund is going to be really important because, you know, immediately we're going to have you know, hundreds of dollars, millions of dollars of deficits, like next, you know, the, the following year and after that. And I think if you are, have a permanent fund, that's a little bit okay with being overdrawn and has a, you know, board structure that is open to that idea, then it kind of all sorts to balance out, but it doesn't, you know, but it, it's basically about how much risk you want to take in this budget, I think is sort of the really sort of like baseline message that I think I people should keep in mind here is like, there is yes there is a scenario where we could spend everything to everybody this year and it's going to be great for the next decade actually because oil prices will continue to go up and we'll be fine or we could be back to where we are with like even less options on the table to make it work out and i i don't i mean i think it 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 really is tough because right you could have a big pfd this year you know and i think yeah it's kind of a freaky friday budget you know you've got this you've got a position like dunlavey who gutted the government in 2019 is now put out this big like fat cushy i love everyone budget and the the democrats who have been and and the kind of middle of the road republicans who have who have been like advocates of spending on on programs that people need are now in this weird position of being like, well, wait, are we spending too much? Like, is that, are you going too far there? Where, how does this work in the future? Um, and so it's, it's almost been like this, like personality swap of, uh, you, you have people that are advocating for a, for conservative budgeting that are really like the, the quote unquote tax and spend liberals. And it's, so it's been very interesting. I think it is a product of the, of, of it being an election year. Um, but I'd be interested in how, you know, I haven't seen this analysis, but I'd be interested in how this budget compares to the 2019 budget. And I'd be interested in how this budget compares to the, uh, um, the spending cap that Dunleavy's been proposing we put into the constitution. Like, right. does this, does this fit his own values, you know, or is this just a, you know, a pie in the sky kind of thing that he put out there yeah. for purposes of discussion? <laughs> you know, so I don't, I, it, it's, it's, um, it, it has a long way to go. And I think it's going to be, um, it, you know, something I, when we're talking about the Craig Richards thing, something that I've observed at least this, this first week is like, it, it this has been a refreshing process. Um, I'm enjoying the, uh, the comments and the work that the legislature is doing. And it's, um, it's, it's been nice to see capable people come to the table with good questions. Um, you know, after 
months and months and months of feeling like the only thing happening in Alaska politics is the Anchorage Assembly and a bunch of people, you know, yelling and dancing on the tables. And so it's <laughs> it's nice to see the legislature in this role of competence and stability. And I'm sure that'll break down as the session yeah. goes on. But like, it's the beauty of this part of the session is that is is you know there's it feels like there's some accountability it feels like there's some adults in the room and at the table well, and i like that yeah and there's like a it's it's a policy policy discussion right and i think that's what is so kind of exhausting about what anchorage politics feels like lately which is like it's purely politics there's very little policy that is going on in large part you know we i won't go down that i won't go down that uh road right now but yeah you know, i think it, it i think that it does feel nice i think it's all the one thing to keep in mind or one of the one of the things to keep you up at night, at least with when it comes to this is that, you know, I think it's really important to not forget where we were last year by the end of the session. Yeah. And I think specifically, you know, as we neared the um, potential shutdown of state government, you know, and th- this is all over the effective date clause. Right. Right. So so the effective date clause in the Constitution says that uh, uh a bill is not enacted until 90 days after it is signed by the governor. Um, and so unless they ho- chirp- withhold the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so they've, the governor sort of said, aha, we interpret it an, a new way than it has been interpreted in the past. Uh, fooled you all, which means that um, to, to override that 90 days time gap, you need two thirds majority of the legislature and that gives the minority a way to 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 either get what they want or to shut down the government and it's kind of a a heavy hammer but it's but it's a tool that can be used if interpreted that way by the minority i'm not completely sold that that was the constitutional intent of the effective date clause that it was i don't know that it was when we talked about this a little bit on a previous episode i don't think that it was meant to apply to uh the state budget um, so much as it was meant to apply to bills about jaywalking and, and uh, liquor licenses right, and things like that. Right, because the whole idea is that you could file a referendum to try to repeal the bill, but the problem is is you can't file a referendum on budget bills. So Right, um, but it still stands that the Dunleavy administration says, now you need to pass a budget and I need to sign, not, not just pass a budget 90 days before the new fiscal year, but you need to pass a budget and the government needs to sign it. Which adds another what, uh, ten to thirty days? What's the, what's the time period that the governor has to sign oh, it before it becomes is automatic? It some is number that 30 of business days? days. Oh, let's see, Alaska Constitution veto. Fifteen days. Oh. Not work days, right? Just fifteen days. Fifteen days. Sundays accepted. Okay, yeah. so so fifteen, sixteen days. <laughs> so what that means is that if if the governor chooses to stall the budget bill out and uh let it become enacted automatically then we, we're talking a hundred and po- potentially 106 days prior to the fiscal year which is july 1st right right and so this is you know where we if you remember all the talk about the defective budget this is where this comes from right and the issue here is that like they have usually voted on this effective date clause just because it's like a normal course of business. People understand. Basically, people never really wanted to like mess around and find out, basically. And 105 days before July 1st, let's say 106 days if there's a Sunday in there, just so we can get the maximum time span. That means they would need to pass a budget by March 17th. So to, for it to is escape a uh, two-thirds uh, majority vote that can be... Uh, 
leveraged by the minority. Yeah, which is, I mean, which is to say that, like, typically this hasn't been an issue in years past. Either they they usually would get the the that vote to make it immediately effective, just be, even though that they kind of acknowledge that they didn't really need it. Um, they never really wanted to play this game, and so the issue is that you know we have a minority that's empowered by Dunleavy's interpretation of the law that can use this as a lever and we we've saw it used last year they nearly shut down the state government over it and so i think this is a thing that's like front of mind for a lot of people at least of like how do we how do we avoid this because um as we saw last year i mean people were trying to use it as not as just leverage for like the pfd but for like pretty sweeping like you know budgetary decisions as far as like they really wanted anti-abortion language in the in the budget. They really wanted like all sorts of stuff that uh, to be put in there, and they were almost using it as if it was like this golden ticket to to keep things running. And I think it to a lot of people it was like really surprising that people were willing to create such a disaster as as to shut down government over something like this. And I think it was something that for a long time we didn't think was going to be an issue but now it is and so i think the question is you know how do you if we want to avoid it you got to get a budget passed in two months and so it's not impossible but it's going to take some yeah. real discipline to do the problem again you come back to though is that not only do they not have the votes for the supermajority thing but they hardly have the votes to pass a budget on their own like the house has only got you know controls 21 <laughs> yeah. votes the senate is a mess on its own for various other reasons and so being able to get it all done and threaded is difficult that, you know, and you go back to kind of what has made budgets easier to do in the past. It's a lot of money, right? It's easier to pass a budget that is bigger, that kind of addresses everybody's needs as in, you know, if it pays out a big PFD that gets a lot of votes on board. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up with a 50, 50 PFD by the end of the day, you know, because just simply because the numbers kind of work on it. I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're going to get the, 2021 supplemental that the government governor wants but i wouldn't be surprised if you ended up with a 50 50 this year simply yeah, because my, it's just politically sense, easier to do yeah my sense is the same is that like there's going to be a lot of hard questions about the budget and then i think the legislature is going to roll over and be like all right cool let's let's do this mm -hmm. and then see how the elections go yeah because <clears throat> i don't think anyone wants to go into the election Every, you know everyone except for donnie olson right is, mm -hmm. is up for re-election so i don't think anyone's going to want to go into in into the election saying i i fought to st stop this particular expenditure that is good for your mm -hmm. school or good for your you know <laughs> good for your area so it's so i think that it's going to be a, a pretty friendly budget year and i think that the resistance will be vocal but not substantial yeah so speaking of election years i think we gets us kind of neatly into our next topic a little, God, little you're transition. so good at transitioning <laughs> just just smooth as butter yeah. so all right <laughs> so let's talk about elections this year the, the other kind of marquee issue this week is that the election reforms contained in ballot measure two approved by the voters last year are in place there uh, so they survived a legal challenge this week in front of the alaska supreme court where um a libertarian candidate scott kolhas and a few other groups were were basically arguing that the the there was trickery and unconstitutionality and all these sort of it was, it was like the kitchen sink man sort of if you understood out. what they were arguing and you listened to that thing it's <laughs> that's impressive it was there it was a lot of they were just throwing spaghetti at the wall yeah i mean there, there was they were talking about how terrible biden was at one point how 
California. They didn't even recognize California anymore. So it was it was not the best showing. I think you could kind of watch that, and we're pretty sure that the the reforms were going to be in place. But I think you know, with all things, you kind of worry, right? There's always a little yeah. bit of worry in the back of your mind. And go well. Was that other, you know, amicus brief filing that was authored by Craig Richards? Is that the the piece that was going to be convincing? Um, wasn't so. Yeah. So now, um, open prime nonpartisan open primaries where the top four candidates uh, advance to the general election, which would be then conducted with ranked choice voting, is here to stay. And we also have some dark money, you know, measures that are in place apparently. <laughs> yeah but that those well and, and that those weren't contested yeah. in the in the yeah in the, the whole the, argument the was that anyways. the everything rode the coattails of dark money reform but yeah and, and actually so i listened i listened to that and that um court case and it actually helped clear up a few things for me that and it, i think it actually the the arguments were really good for ranked choice voting and the the few little wiggly things that i worried about felt like they were on much firmer f- footing afterwards so um, I'm a lot more confident with, it was nice to, it was nice that that lawsuit happened and that it was won, um, because it feels like it's on much firmer footing yeah. going into the election. And I think what we have to expect now is that there's just going to be, there's just going to be an effort to undermine it and make it more confusing so that they can try and repeal it in the future. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's going to happen and I'm very excited and I hope it goes well and I'll, I'll be doing my best to try and help people understand it i think that it's going to take a lot of it's going to take a lot of community effort to get everyone up to speed um yeah i mean honestly how does this work now it's going to honestly <laughs> like we just got to go through an election to see how it works right because i think there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of assumptions about like what kind of outcomes it's going to produce because you know because more centrist you know progressive groups backed it i think there's like an automatic knee-jerk assumption from a lot of republicans that it's going to be like somehow elect democrats up and down the board which i think if you look at like how at least you know the new york election new york mayoral election went right like they ended up with the most conservative democrat of the bunch um i think that is to me is is going to be interesting moving forward it's just like you know i think I think there really is going to be a pull towards the center or even like center right in a lot of these districts because, you know, all these districts there because are, that's what they are. Yeah, because that's what they are, right? They're going to be a more accurate representation instead of having, you know, the, you know, the the most dedicated Republican voters deciding something. You're going to have all of the conservative voters deciding something, and so I think that is going to be like, you know, an interesting sort of outcome in this is, is to see that I think, you know, you're going to end up with a lot of moderates. I wouldn't be surprised if we have, you know, a fair number of like for recently, you know, former legislators, former moderate Republican legislators run, try to run it back, you know, try to get seats back yeah. from, you know, the com- people who beat them in the primaries, because I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, we had these semi-closed partisan primaries that in a lot of districts effectively decided who was going to win in the general be removed from the process and, yeah. and, and there were distillation there were mm-hmm. distillation you get the the most conservative conservative the most like wing nutty wing nut and then you have no choice but like that person and that person wins yeah. and or they don't win and they lose to someone that's like the the opposite and doesn't also doesn't represent the district right. because it's like well we voted for the the liberal candidate because the conservative was so bad and and now we're stuck with this. And then there's a swing back in the other direction. So right. I, it, I think this opens up a lot of room. 
and pushes the decision making to the general election. That was my biggest problem with our with our system before is that all in many districts, the important decisions were made in the primary, which don't have as much turnout, don't have as much involvement, don't have as much vetting. Moving the important decisions to the general election is what should what should happen. And that that part, if if anything stays, that should stay. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think that's going to be good moving forward. Is it honestly too? It's like the there would be times where you know there'd be a race where it's not even like worth dedicating resources to really covering, right? Like a lot of you know a lot of these sort of downtown you know progressive parts of Anchorage, it would just be the Democrat right against somebody. And so I think you know having a race where it might be you're gonna have the you're gonna have the really liberal democrat you're gonna have the centrist democrat you're gonna have centrist republican you're gonna have the wingnut republican and it i think that like produces a more interesting discussion right and i think those are like some you know you know yeah that is a that's a that's a real decision to make right i think you know before it would be well i'm not going to support that person because that person's in that job and this person i don't love but i couldn't you know and so i think you hopefully end up not voting so much against people as you are voting for somebody and i think that is kind of the 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 really core issue here and i so i'm excited to see how it works out um i I think i'm not going to count on alaska's political system being saved quite yet but i think one of the other issues to keep in mind too is that this only works if the candidates show up, right? And I think, I think hopefully people look past sort of the the, the party system and, and sort of the controlling of it, and say like, if you want to run and you got the support and you've got the time and effort and the care to do it, then then do it and get in. I hope we see more candidates file than we've ever seen before. As I think, yeah. like having those decisions ends up with a better representation for our communities. I think that's the direction it will grow, but I think that it may take a couple election cycles to start seeing people. Uh, you know, we all need to understand the system, and then people will be like, "Oh, okay, it's all right if I run. Uh, if I, you know, maybe I won't even put any effort into the primary. I'll just put my name out there, and then if people elect me, then I'll get real serious about the general election. You know, like I mean, the primary mm-hmm. could become that. It could become you know, like maybe we put 10 names in the hat and, and then see if anyone really, you know, does anyone know who I am? Does anyone, that could just be the, you don't need to go out and do a bunch of polling. The primary can be that poll. It's like, do I have enough name recognition and interest to make it to the general election? Mm-hmm. Great. I'm a top four candidate. Yeah. I'll run. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see again. Well, that's, that's the theme song on elections. Yeah, we'll, we'll see, see. We'll see. We'll see. So the other um, thing that we'll see on, yeah, I'm gonna beat you to the punch again on Go transitioning. Is yeah, so like under the the realm of elections is redistricting. So this uh, week, uh, so last Friday was the first day of the redistricting lawsuit. the The key thing to keep in mind here is that this is just a really, really weird loss trial, like all together. So, um, there's five different clients or five different plaintiffs that are suing the Alaska Redistricting Board. There's an intervener that's trying to defend part of it too. Um, and, and oh, by the way, they're speed running. And it. oh, by the way, they're speed. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, where you would expect to hear like opening arguments and direct testimony, all that stuff has already been filed. So if you want to like see the sort of broad sort of strokes of the arguments that these groups are making, you got to go on to the court website and look up the court, the case and, and find all the briefings because it's all filed there. So on Friday was the first day of it, which was mostly spent, 
um, doing cross-examination. So it was the Alaska Redistricting Board's attorney questioning some of the witnesses that were brought by the plaintiffs challenging the East Anchorage Senate pairings. Um, if you watch just that, it's really hard to get any sense of where anything is going. If you read all the filings, it's still really hard to get a sense of where anything is going. Um, there's still, it's interesting too, because they're also like having ongoing like discovery issues. They're trying to get a hold of like documents still that they haven't yet produced or still fighting over. Um, so, I mean, you can make some like wildly uneducated guesses about how things are going, but it's one of those things where we're just going to have to see, we're really not going to know any direction of how it's going to go until we see the final ruling. And then it's going to go to the Supreme court anyway. So. Remind me again of the timeline like this. I mean, I assume that some of this will need to be resolved before the next election. Yes. Since it impacts the next election. Yeah. So that's sort of the that is, again, another area where we don't really have a ton of clarity. If you so I covered the 2010 redistricting trial and um, that's sort of where I'm basing my assumptions off of it moving forward. But basically, like um typically the the superior court needs to round, wrap up its trial by and have a decision over the court by early february um the supreme court gave them an extra i think two weeks so they're going to be in mid-february now um the filing deadline is on june 1st um for for legislative races so the court is um last time around was, was pretty aware of um you know the difficulty of drawing new maps you know, that quickly and following the process, because that was sort of the issue last time is that they didn't follow the process. And so they basically last time ordered like the most egregious problems sort of quickly resolved and left, you know, so we ended up getting a whole new map the next year after that, you know, so we got the 2012 elections on one map, the and then going forward, they had another map after that. And so looking at this, um, there's not any issues to me that would require a wholesale redrawing of the maps. So that's one thing I, you know, I think they're going to make, you know, the board will make arguments that they can't possibly redraw them in time. Again, a lot of the issues are about, you know, where one community is, you know, one community is in this district versus this district. So, you know, you could see how potentially accommodating that might be doable in this time. I don't know about that. Um, the one issue that they that plaintiffs believe could be resolved quickly is the Senate pairings in East Anchorage. You know, those aren't asking to redraw the boundaries of the maps, which is a big, you know, that's a big uh, right. They're just issue just the want to shuffle some House districts into different Senate districts yeah. so that Eagle River is paired with Eagle River. That's probably the like in terms of what I've seen, that is probably the most realistic thing that could happen before the next yeah. election. It feels like everything else is probably pretty locked in. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, and, and they would probably argue, too, that, you know, the Senate pairings that ended in this um, were, you know, one one you know so one version of it was presented one night they went into seek you know closed door meetings and produced an entirely different plan the next morning so it you know there's a pretty clear at the very least there's a pretty clear record that you could get it done in a, in a day you know you could fix those senate pairings in a day yeah. i think that has a pretty big impact on what the senate will look like um next year because basically you know it's pairing a very conservative um open Eagle River house seat with what has been a pretty swingy um, South Muldoon 
House seat. This is the one that um, Democrat Liz Snyder won by 11 votes. You know, if you pair it with a Republican district, is going to pretty consistently produce a Republican senator. Was there some mention that like they believe that the um, redistricting board doesn't need to follow the Open Meetings Act? Yes. What was that? Can you explain that? Because I thought that was interesting. Yeah. To me. That sounded like a new idea to me. Yeah. So they argue that because the redistricting board is created by the Alaska Constitution, it is therefore not part of state government. And not subject to legislation. Yeah. Which is, which is weird because a lot of what they do is, is in statute. Yeah. So, so I don't, are they also arguing that they are not subject to statute? More, I mean, kind of in some way. It, I, you know, I think one of the things to keep in mind if you watch these trials is that most people I've talked to come out of it going, man, the attorney for the Alaska redistricting board, Matt Singer, who is kind of a, a ringer, I would guess, or I would say, you know, he shows up in a lot of conservative issues. is a real jerk. You know, he's like, a, you know, people kind of look at this guy and don't like him. But I think huh. he is a good attorney, right? And he's the kind of, he's one of those attorneys that kind of exemplifies the, like, every attorney sucks except for the one that's on my side, right? And so uh, I think, you know, he's really good at delaying, at, you know, throwing up basically any sort of roadblocks you can, right? It's almost, you know, a mirror of, you know, Craig Richards' testimony in front of the LBNA commission, you know, but a little, with a little more uh, skill behind it, I guess. But it's basically, you know, make it as difficult as possible for the other side to litigate their case against you, throw up as many roadblocks as possible, and see what sticks, right? Because, you know, he's he, not only is he arguing, you know, that the Open Meetings Act doesn't apply, but he's also argued pretty broad, you know, attorney-client privilege. He's argued, um, he tried to remove uh, the East Anchorage case and another case to federal court because they dared to reference the Voting Rights Act. Um, so there's a lot of different sort of little things that are being thrown up here and there. I think that's kind of the frustrating part of this lawsuit is that, you know, typically a redistricting lawsuit at this level takes six to seven months to resolve. Typically, they have gotten the census data way back in advance and they've produced their maps by like summer of 2021. So now they're reaching this point where they're, you know, the ability to litigate this trial is sort of challenged because, you know, the court has the right to challenge and delay and, you know, use any sort of powers that they want. And so sort of the flow of this is, is, you know, the, the challenges of how this works is, is becoming really clearly apparent right now. And so, um, you know, the the, time is not on the side of the litigants. Right. And so any effort that the, that is made by the redistricting board to delay or confuse or entangle this effort benefits them because they'll just run out of time. Right. And, and I think, and that might mean, you know, that things get changed, but they might not get changed in time for this election, which is a bummer because, you know, then, then every, you know we get two years of whatever this legislative this map produces, and then we get another map. But you know that right. that's that's how it worked last time to an extent. So yeah. everyone could be running again in two years. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. So one one other court case that that um that happened this week is a eventful week in the courts. Um, but the uh, the federal court case involving Libby Bacalar uh was decided, and uh, she won her First Amendment. Uh, case against the Dunleavy administration for her illegal and unconstitutional firing. And, uh, you know, I think it, it was a big 
affirmation for her that she had, you know, she'd really stuck to her guns. She didn't settle. um, She uh, followed through on this thing that was a real uphill slog and, and she caught a lot of, uh, got a lot of haranguing for it, um, but was ultimately correct. And uh, I think she's doing victory laps on Twitter and, (laughs) and, and, and deservedly so. Um, I, th- I think, you know, if people don't know Libby, um, we did an interview with her back in 2018 prior to her firing and kind of back when the Me Too movement was getting off the ground and the Women's March was happening. And she had just given a big speech for that. Um, and she talked a lot about uh, First Amendment rights and about how important it is to use your voice and how as a state employee, you're actually, you have, you're afforded quite a great deal of protections. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to go back and listen to that if they haven't had a chance to, to hear her speak. Um, you know, she, she's a person with a lot of depth and a lot of principle. And I, you know, I think that in, in the world of, uh, you know, 144 characters, sometimes it's nice to, listen to someone like that uh think a little bit you know un- mm-hmm. unspool things a little bit more yeah it's a really interesting case because um so the kind of other sort of things to keep in mind is that uh dunleavy and tuckerman Bab- uh, chief of staff tuckerman babcock got to maintain their qualified immunity in it so they don't get to get personally sued um there's right. a we get to pay for it yeah there's a little bit of technicalities in there um they'll spare you but the interesting part in here to me is that the court actually said like hey you could have fired her legally yeah like, you if you've could, done it right you've done it right um the whole argument is basically if they were, had been able to show that um uh libby's blog uh and and social media efforts ha- had directly interfered with her work product or, or drew, created concern over it that they or if you just hadn't even brought that up that, yeah that would have been a yeah Right. Or if you didn't have brought brought it up, would have been a permissible way of doing it. I think also that there is the issue of like forced speech, right, which is going on here. The loyalty pledges are, you know, requiring you to associate with somebody. So you're infringing upon the individual's associational rights, which is, I think, the issue that came up with the the Alaska Psychiatric Institute um, doctors who did get to um, cut through the veil of qualified immunity on that. But yeah, I think it's it's. I mean, it it was boneheaded back then, and it looks even worse now. And I think it this whole like effort, this really kind of like petty like payback efforts of the Dunleavy administration really, you know, set the tone for what the last three and a half years have been, right? Which is, you know, it's it's you know poorly thought well, out legal backings and yeah. and challenged in court and i think it's it's frustrating and also gruff governance yeah. like it's this like we're the we're the boss we're the executives we're gonna make all the decisions you're out of here you're fired my way or the highway and like it's the same like vinegar that that bronson came in with and you know three years four years from now it's going to be all the same court cases it's going to be all these you know and he just settled this week with a guy that he fired you know how much and how much did that cost the city you know it's gonna it's it you know that kind of government government doesn't function yeah and i think that's what is so frustrating about it too is that like you know, you look at a lot of these administrations, you know, the, the the political battles leading up to them were hard fought. I think, though, for the most part, you know, people 
with both cases, really wanted to try to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? And it wasn't, you know, people didn't start talking about the recall until we saw um, saw how his budget, you know, came out. Like, that really invigorated those efforts. And I think, you know, if it wasn't for that first-year budget, well, if it wasn't for, like, this sort of gruff governance attitude that you, you're describing, I think, you know, we wouldn't have this, like, concerted effort to try to remove him from office. So I think that it's so frustrating to me for to see people, you know, dismiss recall efforts as if they're not grounded in some sort of you know true grievance and i think you know people dismissing the recalls is like oh you're just mad that he, the right guy didn't win no we're not mad that the right guy didn't win we're mad that the, the guy that won is doing a bunch of bad stuff you know and he's that he's violating sort of the the trust in the office yeah. and he's he's doing all these sort of things yeah this is this is like this is what the like fourth fifth tenth time how many times has dunleavy violated the constitution yeah. now it's been over and over and over again like it's it's well you know the recall is just getting more justified with age yeah. like it's you know it it, it it didn't succeed but i feel like imminently justified in pursuing that effort like now that it's become apparent that not only does did he violate the constitution repeatedly but he, he you know now seems to be leaning towards let's rewrite it because i don't like it yeah and i think that yeah exactly and i think that i think that's you know i think it's an easy to you know call you know label all this like a, a political fight or a political sort of exercise which it is but i think politics can be about much more than just you know us versus them it's you know it's about sort of these like fundamental like values that we hold to be like you know critical to who we are as a, as a society right this, this idea that we can have free speech is is, is like a, a it's a first it's a fundamental piece of where we're at and um to see that you know he didn't like it because it you know of this is just free free yeah. speech if you're saying the right thing right and i think that is easy to sort of maybe dismiss some of the stuff as like this boneheaded administration that we really don't like but i think it's important to really zoom out and understand like just how like devious a lot of this stuff is you know you look at um, you know, voting rights issues in this country, you look at, um, you know, labor laws in this country, you look at all these sort of different things and, you know, policing, all that stuff. And it's, um, you know, this, this kind of constant erosion of the rule of law, uh, of sort of democracy as we know it. And I think it, that is what's so frustrating about it is because I think people might look at, you know, this sort of efforts to, to fight it as, as purely partisan but you know you, you talk to libby you talk to a lot of these people who are, are fighting these fights they're not necessarily motivated by a hate of dunleavy they i think you look at an administration like this that is you know it's underhanded it's bullying it's you know on a shaky legal ground it's you know it, there's a lot of sweetheart deals all over the place i think it's stuff like that that is you know that's what's frustrating about it. That's what I think people are opposed to. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind when we're moving forward. It's not, it's not fights about, you know, whether Democrats or Republicans control, you know, the administration, it's whether or not, you know, we are electing officials who will uphold the oath of office and uphold values that we feel are important. And I think, you know, free speech, the free speech issue is so critical. It's so weird to me that these people are able to, Put on that that cloak they're able to like drape themselves in the language of the people that are trying to stand up for these things you know yeah. people who really do value freedom of speech or people who do value freedom of the press or um you know like and then to say you know we're the 
we're the oath keepers. Yeah. We're the we're the, we're the people right. who protect yeah. the Constitution by raiding the Capitol building. You know, I mean, it's just a weird, it's a weird world out there. Yeah. So, anyways, anyways. it was nice to recap the week in the legislature. Um, I'm sure we'll have another eventful week ahead of us. Is mm-hmm. there anything that I, you want me to keep an eye out for so we can talk about next week? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna so I'm gonna be neat uh, neck deep in redistricting lawsuit stuff. I don't know if, exactly if it's a trial anymore, but stuff. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think if you the, keep an eye on cool legislative hearings, let us know if there's something that's really interesting. And I'll try to keep put some eyes on it and we can talk about okay. it next time. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of drawing lately, which means I can listen to this stuff while I'm doing that. Yeah. So I'll uh, I'll try and tune into a few things and come back with some tidbits. Um, all right. Well, we'll we'll talk again in a week and I'll uh, see you later. Nice, yeah. uh, goodbye, Alaska. Bye.